North Point, how we doing? We good? That back row's getting more excited. Have you noticed that? I don't know what's going on back there, but I wanna, I'm going to hang out back there from now on. I want to start by telling you a story this morning. Um, and I uh, honestly, I wished that it was one of those uh, made-up uh, fairy tale uh, to demonstrate a point type stories. <clears throat> but the story is absolutely true, which is part of why it makes it so sad. It's a story from way back in the day, like long, long, long time ago, like, uh, you know, uh, once upon a time kind of thing. And it's about a group of people, uh, this group of people, they were called uh, the Israelites or Israel. See, Israelites, the Israelis, they're now called the Jews. We're talking like 3,000 years ago or something. These guys were in slavery, and not the good kind of slavery. I don't know if there's a good kind of slavery, but if there were, this was not it. I don't think there is, but this was like the worst of the worst. Like, like the back-breaking b- brick uh, building death is the only thing you have to look forward to kind of life existence. That's what Israel was, was in for like 400 years and one day, this guy named Moses uh, shows up on the scene. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, like, you know, Ben-Hur, Prince of Egypt or whatever. But Moses shows up on the scene, and he's like, let my people go or whatever, right? And, and Israel comes out of slavery. And it wasn't even Moses' idea. It was like God's idea. God woke Moses up one day. He was like, hey, you're going to go set these people free. And he was like, okay. And so he did, right? So they, they get free. And as they're leaving uh, Egypt, that's who's enslaved them. As they're leaving Egypt, the Egyptians are, like, giving them stuff. They're like, hey, sorry about the whole slavery thing. You know, here, take a bag of bread or money or a donkey. Whatever they gave them, they gave them stuff on the way out. And so Israel leaves Egypt, and and the Egyptians are like, here, we're sorry. And they're, okay, cool. And they go, and as soon as they get out of town, like the first thing that hits them is this giant body of uh, water. It's like this ocean or something. And they're like, oh, what are we going to do now? And God's like, oh, no problem. Just watch this. You know, and he parts it, and they walk across, and they're like, this is pretty cool. And they're poking fish and stuff. I don't know how it looked, but in my head, that's how it looked. And so they get across to the other side. Well, Somewhere in there, the Egyptians were like, hey, this isn't cool. We want our people back. We're going to go kill them. I don't understand all that. But they decide to go after them. And so Israel is running through this like water fish thing. And, and, and Egypt comes and, and, and Israel sees Egypt. And they're like, they're like, oh, no, we're going to die. And God's like, psh, psh, don't even worry about it. So they get across. And then the Egyptians go, that's cool. So they start running across. And God slams the water down and destroys Egypt. Some of you have heard this story before. All that is just lead up to the story. Because uh, Israel is now out of slavery. God did this, this amazing thing with this Red Sea that got parted. And I think it's like five minutes later. I don't know how much longer it is, but in my head, it seems like five minutes later. They start complaining. Israel's like, we're thirsty. We're thirsty. This is what, uh, the, just so I can read it to you, because it's pretty funny. This is what they say. Uh, when they came to Morah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter, and the place was called Morah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we going to drink? We're thirsty. And so God's like, no problems. Moses talks to God, and God tells Moses. Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. And he threw the wood into the water, and the water became fit to drink. That's weird. Right? So they're going, we're thirsty. God says, see the piece of wood? Moses is like, grab the wood. Okay, throw the water. Okay, okay. We'll drink the water. Okay, good. Water, drink. Okay, so they've got water now. And it's like five minutes after that, they start griping again. So they're out of slavery. They didn't get killed by the sea. They didn't get killed by the Egyptians. They've got water. And now they're like, we're hungry. But this is how they say it. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. I wish we would have died in slavery. There we sat around with pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Wait a minute. They were in slavery and somehow now they're remembering it. Like we used to just sit around and eat all day. 
What about that whole brick building, back breaking death is the only thing you have to learn? So they're remembering it a little bit differently. They said, we had all the food we wanted, but you've brought us out here in the desert to starve us all to death. Because that was Moses' plan. Right? So they're complaining, we're hungry. And so the Lord says to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. I hate when we read this and that's our response. Like, oh. Hmm. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. You're going to wake up in the morning and frosted flakes from God will be coming down. All you have to do is like, and pick up enough for the rest of the day, and you'll be set. And tomorrow we'll do the same thing, and the next day I'll do the same thing, and the next day the same thing, and the next day the same thing, and the next day the same thing. And so you see where I'm going at this, right? Okay, so we're thirsty. Here's some water. We're hungry. Here's some bread from heaven. I don't know, like, if they had ever had bread before, probably. I don't know if they ever had, like, really good bread before or not, probably. But they've never had God's bread. <laughs> that had to be good, right? Okay, so God's raining down bread for them, and they're just supposed to pick it up. That's like the entirety of what they do. And it's like three minutes after that that they go, we're thirsty again. And this is how they say it. Is this funny to anybody else? It says, but the people were thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our kids and livestock die of thirst? God gave them water with a stick, and then he like rained God bread down on them, and, and now they're like, we're thirsty, we're going to die. And so God says this to him. He says, okay, Moses, go out in front of the people and take with you some elders and whatnot, and take that stick that you used back at the Nile, and take it and strike the rock that I show you, and water will come out of the rock. So Moses did this in the sight of everybody. Can you picture it? We're thirsty. Damn. Right now they got water again. Now they're good, right? Wouldn't you think that you'd be good by now? No way. Check it out. So it's like, I think, five minutes later. I don't really know how much later it is, but I'm guessing it's probably another five minutes. This is what they say. They say, you know all that bread from heaven? That bread sucks. Here's what they actually said. The rabble, I love how it puts it. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. So God's frosted flakes aren't good enough. We want other food. We're so bored with the food that we don't have to do anything for. It's, it's kind of funny. It's sad, right, and funny. And so they say this, uh, if only we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost? What would the cost be? You were slaves. Oh, we had fish back then. I don't think. And also the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. And I picture one of the old guys sitting around going, I don't remember cucumbers. Did you get cucumbers? I don't know that. We were in slaves. We ate dirt. That's all we had, right? Okay, so that's how they're remembering it. And they're complaining because the bread from heaven and the water from the rock and the log and the Red Sea, none of that's good enough. And says, uh, but, now, <laughs> but now we've lost our appetite. I'm not going to eat any more bread. I don't know, man. Sometimes, some days I think everybody's really glad I'm not God. Because I'd have been like, okay, sucks to be you. <laughs> right? But he doesn't do that. Although Moses has a funny line in here. It's my favorite Moses line. Moses and God are talking about what to do. And Moses says, I can't carry all these people by myself. Like the burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, just please go ahead and kill me. Like, if I found favor in your eyes at all, God, like, if you like me at all, if we're friends, just, just take me from the planet, okay? Because Moses is like, I'm not dealing with these people anymore. But that's not what happens. God doesn't do that. Instead, they talk, and this is what God does. It says, 
Now a wind went from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. And it scattered them up to two cubits deep, like three feet, all around the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. And all that day and night and all the next day and the next night, people went out and gathered the quail. We're thirsty. Here's some water. We're thirsty. We want meat. I don't know what quail sounds make, right? So this is it. Like, that's it. They got to be done complaining and grumbling and griping, right? Oh, man, I'm glad you read this. This is insane. Okay, so the next thing, they just pick up their quail. I think they still have armfuls of it, and this is what it says. It says, Miriam, that was Moses' sister. That's a whole nother sermon. I don't know where to go with this. But Miriam and Aaron, that's Moses' right-hand man, began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. I don't even know what that means, right? For he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? We don't think God should only talk to Moses. We want to lead to his wife is dumb. Or I don't even know what that is. What a strange situation, grumbling and complaining and griping. And we read that story and we try to imagine it and we kind of chuckle. And in my head, I apologize if this is offensive. I don't mean it to be at all. But it sounds like that five-year-old kid who just got Christmas toys. And they're like, it's not enough toys. And you're like, I'll show you enough toys, right? It's just this grumbling and complaining and griping and we read it and it's such a sad, sad story and we ask the question, what the what? Like, what is wrong with these people? Like, God did some amazing things for them, but man, all they can do is gripe about stuff that, yeah, water and food, like God's got a plan, like good night, what in the world? But they're just griping and complaining and maybe I can suggest this that the reason that these guys are landing where they landed in this world, in this concept, in this character quality of griping and complaining simply was because they're off mission. They're focused on the wrong things. See, Israel at the time, they had one mission. It was to go. Like God said, hey, I got this great land prepared for you, so just leave the place you're at and just start walking that direction. I'm going to show you right where it is. I'm going to take care of you. It's going to be real cool. And that's their job. One foot in front of the other. They're supposed to wake up in the morning, pack up their stuff, one foot in front of the other. That was their mission. Pretty simple. But instead of being on mission, they're like focused on all the wrong things and they land in this griping, complaining, grumbling thing. And I want to suggest that maybe when we're off mission, we do the same exact thing. When we're off mission, we end up grumbling and complaining and whining and focused on the wrong things. If that's true, then it begs the question this morning, what is our mission? What's our common mission? Uh, what is it we're supposed to do? Israel understood what they were supposed to do, but they didn't, uh, and so they grumbled and complained. What are we supposed to do? We're in the uh, three weeks of this series that we're calling more. You kind of see it everywhere behind me. And last week, we answered kind of the first question of our common identity or our common be. In other words, the thing that is true of all Christ followers uh, in terms of who they are. And we said it was simply to be a child of God and a disciple of Jesus. Child of God, a disciple of Jesus. I mean, it all begins with understanding that, right? And it all begins with embracing that. And it all begins with just starting to live that out in practical ways, this idea of being a child of God, a disciple of Jesus. It's not just being a believer in Jesus. It's not 
good enough, full enough, complete, accurate to be a believer in Jesus. God calls us to be a follower or disciple of Jesus. Like we have the fullness of Jesus living inside of us. That's our common identity. That's our common be. Today we look at our common mission or our common do. And if you're going to tune out for the rest, let me just tell you what it is, and then we'll try and build a case for it over the next few minutes together. But it's this right here. Our common mission is to, is to be a disciple that makes disciples. Pretty simple. Our common mission is to be a disciple. That's the identity piece that makes disciples. That's the common do piece. So let's jump into a couple of texts this morning. If you have your app, we've got those in there. They'll probably pop up on the screen behind me. But if you have a Bible and you want to turn to John 10.10, that's where I want to start. You've heard me mention John 10.10 a bunch of times. It's just a verse that sits uh, deeply rooted in me because I think there's so much good theology that comes out of what John has to say here, his quoting of Jesus. And this is what he says in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, this is Jesus talking, so you know. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. These two people that Jesus is talking about in this simple one-sentence verse, two people, one is Satan, that's the thief, the devil, Satan. His whole thing is to kill and steal and destroy. Those words, still kill and steal, kill and destroy, are like minimizing concepts. They're concepts that, that take from you. And that makes sense. You know, if, if, you, if you get something stolen from you, you have less of that. If you get uh, killed, you have less life. If you get destroyed, your nation is smaller, or your country is smaller, or your house is smaller. All of those things are actions that separate you from something. Stealing separates you from your purse. Killing separates you from life. Destruction separates you from the thing that was destroyed. That makes sense to us. Satan wants to separate us. That's like his thing. He wants us separated. He wants to separate us from God, from others, from our created purpose. Like Satan's role is to make you small, to separate you from everything and and cause you to settle for less. Satan's role is to help you, cause you, encourage you, tempt you to settle for less. And so many Christ followers, we settle for less. We're okay with good enough. We settle for minimal. Like, like, why aren't we super jacked about Jesus? Like, that's the thing we wake up excited about, the thing we go to bed excited about. Because we settle for, like, I'm okay with Jesus. Jesus and I are okay. You ever heard the phrase from someone like, the big man upstairs and I are okay? Oh, that makes my heart so sad. It's okay. He's not good enough. Like, like, why aren't churches just exploding with new converts and people entering into relationship with Jesus? I think it's because we settle for, oh, I'm just going to focus on my family right now. You know, that's really all I have time for. I'm very busy. And that's not bad, but it's like it's, it's settling. Why don't we see miracles and supernatural happen? I think because we settle for, you know, Jesus, just, just help me be comfortable. I just want to be comfortable. Like, don't do all the weird stuff. <laughs> just, just let me be comfortable. Satan is called the thief because he wants to separate you from anything 
more. See, Satan doesn't care if you go to church. He doesn't care if you believe in Jesus. He doesn't care about those things. He just wants you. He just wants me to be less than, to settle for something else so that we will be miserable. Satan. The other guy in this, in this short one sentence is Jesus, right? Jesus says, I have come that you'll have life and life to the full. His role is to give us this full, overflowing, abundant life, life that can't be contained one hour on a Sunday morning. Like if this is it, if this one hour is the time that we spend with Jesus, oh, you're sottling. It's so minimal. It's so sad. See, see, Jesus wants us so uncomfortable riding the edge that you're like, I don't know if I can take all of it, because you can't. It's so amazing and adventurous and exciting. Jesus wants to cause us to exercise our created purpose fully. He's got this purpose for us. He wants that exercise to its fullness. He wants to pour into you so that you're pouring into others. That's the heart of disciple-making. Right? It's your sweet spot, and Jesus wants you in it totally, completely. So every moment of every breath, you say, man, I'm doing exactly what God has created me to do. Can you say that? Can I say that about my life, about your life? That every breath and every moment, you're saying, this is exactly what God has for me. Can you imagine living that way? It would be ridiculous. You'd never go to sleep at night. <laughs> You'd be so, ah, no, it's probably, you'd have great sleep at night because you'd get into bed at night, you'd just be like, man, I'm doing exactly what God has called me to do, answering the question, not only who am I, but what am I supposed to be doing? I want to be on mission. Here's the danger. The danger is that lots of us, many people are attracted to the idea of doing life to its fullness. Did you hear that? Lots of us are attracted to the idea of doing life to its full capacity. But not many are willing to take the pain of change that it requires to make it happen. See, the idea of doing life with Jesus, the idea of, of being on mission, the idea of having life and life to the full, it's, a, it's an idea, it's a concept that speaks to something deep inside of us because God put it there. And we go, yeah, I want that, I want that, I want that. And we're going to sing a song in a few minutes and we're going to clap and we're going to, I want that. And we go out and all of a sudden it requires change. Start doing some things that I, I don't know if I have time to do or you've got to start stopping, start stopping some things that maybe uh, aren't really helpful to the mission. You're like, but I really like those things. You're like, ah, maybe not. The idea is neat, and the implementation is hard because it causes some pain and some changes, some things that I'm just not so sure I want to go through, and so we land right back into settling. See, as Christ followers, when we settle for less, we actually encourage not yet Christ followers to not want Jesus. I mean, I mean why on the planet, if, if my life, and I, and I say that I'm a Christ follower, is just a settling for less, why would someone who doesn't know Jesus look at me and be like, yeah, I want that too. I want less. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. When we settle for less, we encourage not yet Christ followers to not want Jesus. Let me show you how this works. Ephesians chapter 1, just a couple more verses here. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 18. 
it says this, a guy by the name of Paul is writing this to a church in Ephesus. Um, Paul had some great experiences with Jesus and became a guy who lived life totally to its full abundance, understood his mission, was, was on mission. And this is what he says in chapter one, verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he, God, has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body and the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul says, open your eyes, like wake up, like grow up, like notice, pay attention, guys, that there is power and hope for this thing called the church. See, the church wasn't a person's idea. The church was God's idea. God said, we're going to create this thing that's going to help you live on mission and do what you're supposed to do. But the church is not this building or this name that's North Point. The church is you, and me, we're the church. Like, you don't go to church, you, you be the church. So that's who we are designed to be as this identity, a child of God, a disciple of Jesus, is that we are the church. And as the church, we have this power to infiltrate the entire world. It's a cool thing. We talk about this concept of a common bee, that we have the fullness of Jesus inside of us. Our do, our common do is to make disciples. All that means is like we take that fullness of Jesus that's inside of us and we infect, is a terrible word, we infect the rest of the planet with it. It just pours out of us and spills into every crack and crevice of society. Whether you're a doctor or a butcher or a stay-at-home mom or, or a funny guy or a not funny guy or whatever your thing might be, golfer, painter, popcorn maker, I don't know. Like, that's, that's it, man. You're taking the fullness of Jesus that's inside of you, and you're just letting that spill out into every crack and crevice of society. I don't know. It's an amazing mission. It's an amazing mission. It pours out of you and pours into everything else. Here's how we said it. It says, to fill every crack and crevice of the world with that fullness of Jesus as it pours out of you and spills into everything else. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to be super articulate. You don't have to go to school for a day or a hundred years. You just take that fullness of Jesus that's inside of you as a Christ follower, and you let it spill out into every area that you go. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul goes on, and he says this in verse 8. He says, For it's by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we're God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's the picture. You're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. Like, we're not just designed to enter into this relationship with Jesus, maybe understand our common be, like, oh, I'm, I'm a child of God, a disciple of Jesus, and that's it. Like, you just sit there. Oh, that's wonderful. Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, there is, a, there is a natural do that comes with that. We're not saved by the do. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works, uh, we became Christ followers. God called us into relationship with him for a purpose. Matter of fact, this, this word here in verse 10, it says we are God's handiwork. If you have ESV, it might say workmanship. The literal Greek there is this cool word poema, which we get our English word poem from. 
God wrote you as a poem. And he didn't write you as a poem to get stuck in a file somewhere and then just be. be. Right? He, he wrote you as a poem because he wanted to, to change the world. He wanted to evoke emotion. He wanted you to do something. He's got this plan for you. He wants to put that poem on display. There's a performance. There's, there's, there's a reading. There's a, are you, you're with me? Like that's what God has for us. He created us as, as a poem to do these, these, these things, to be on mission, which God has already prepared for us to do. So if we say, I really like the being a disciple part, I really like having the fullness of Jesus poured into side of me, inside of me. And I'm just going to stop there. Well, see, God has created these things, this mission for you. And if you're like, nah, I'm okay. I'm just going to stay back here. Man, how to settle for, for life that's just less than. Let, let me finish up. In Ephesians 2, verse 19, he says this, kind of closes this idea. Paul says, Consequently, entering into this relationship with Jesus, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Here's the part that I want us to hear out of this. When, when you're adopted into the family of God, when you become a Christ follower, you don't just get God as a parent. You don't just become a child of God, but like you're drawn into to be a member of the family. In other words, whether you like it or not, you get brothers and sisters. Like, like when adopted kids get adopted uh, into a family, they don't just get the parents. They get whatever comes with that family. They get siblings, brothers and sisters, right? We understand this. I, I forget this. I got to be honest. Like I think quickly about the concept of being uh, adopted into God's family and that I'm a child of God and that's so great and there's richness to it and it makes me feel good inside and I kind of forget sometimes I'm, I got, I'm in this brother and sister thing too. Uh, baptism is a picture of that. We, we use the word born again when we do baptisms in, in the water and up out of the water. We use phrases like, oh, they're born. Again, when you're born, you're born into siblings as well, not just parents. Doing life together, pouring into others, taking the fullness of Jesus that's in you into every area of life is built into that system. You cannot be a solo Christ follower like this whole thing hinges on this connectivity to other people and this is the hardest part for me see i'm an introvert by nature i've shared that with you before i have a really small social tank i only need like a half a person to fill fill that up or whatever so i don't have this massive crave to be with lots of people some do and that's fantastic you probably get this concept so much easier and you're you're like chris why is that hard for you you must not know jesus and i do need more jesus in me but i'll tell you like this is the hardest thing for me and you add to the fact that i'm an introvert and have a small social tank the fact that i've been burned and hurt by people you have too we've all experienced that it's part of the human condition you throw that in there too which by the way for a side note for whatever it's worth to you it took me a long time to realize that lots of people don't really want to be friends with a pastor. They just want to be like an inside scoop. <laughs> and when they don't get an inside scoop, then all of a sudden the whole friendship thing melts apart. Well, you learn these kinds of things and you've got your own story from your own world and all that plays into this concept of, I'll just do life by myself. This is easy for me. Satan wants to steal and kill and destroy. He just wants us separated from others. It's just so much simpler for him that way. 
So a year or so ago when I'm in this life group and one of our guys in there named Justin looks at me point blank and he goes, so what's in this for you? Shut up, Justin. <laughs> he said, are you, are you in this because it's your job or are you in this because we're really doing this life thing together? And, and the reaction inside of me was so bizarre because I was like, oh my gosh, this could be real. What a strange thing. 43, just beginning to figure some of this stuff out. Justin is a saint in my life that he was willing to ask that question because this thing that we're doing together is literally something together. Uh, uh, the, Jim Putman puts it this way. He says, um, people need relationship and purpose like water for the soul. People need relationship and purpose like water for the soul. Jesus was clear on this whole concept of being a disciple who makes disciples, taking the fullness of Jesus that's in me and pouring it into every crack and crevice of the world connected to other people. In Matthew 28, 19, as he's leaving the planet, kind of his last words to his guys, he says this. He says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you and be sure of this, that I am always with you, even to the end of the world. Like, there's no mistaking this. Being a disciple who makes disciples is not an option. It's not something that's only for a select few of paid staff or clergy or pastors or smart enough or good enough or popular enough or whatever you want to put in there. It's not an option and it's not for some. It's for everyone. It is our common mission. It's our common do as Christ followers. Now, what does that look like in your specific world? We get to unpack that starting in week five. I know it's like the hanger for you got to come back for a couple more weeks, but we're going to unpack it to get incredibly specific on how that looks for you particularly. So Israel, the people who grumbled and complained a lot, we had a, a little chuckle out a little earlier, they went on to live, and I'd like to say that they figured this all out, but they didn't. Some did, certainly some did. Some figured out their mission and what they were supposed to be doing, this, this concept of the fullness of God in them pouring out into every place that they go. And, and they went on to live full lives with, especially as Jesus came on the planet and whatnot. But, but many, uh, most, most of them missed it and continued to live less than lives. They settled for comfortable when they could have had great and as we here in this room try and get a grip on our common mission, right, to be disciples that make disciples, taking the fullness of Jesus that's in us and letting it spill to every place we go, it's just become a natural part of who we are. We won't spend time complaining about stuff that doesn't matter. It's not interesting or very compelling anymore. Instead, it's all about living the calling that Jesus invites us into because that's what's got our attention. For you guys that are in more groups or life groups, you're going to have some fun uh, this week trying to... F- talk through these eight characteristics that they say are paramount to living this out. But I just wanted to finish with a quote from the Moore book, because this is how he puts it. He says, fortunately, Jesus, Jesus's way of making disciples requires no special training or degrees or skill or strategy. Instead, it focuses squarely on how best to intentionally place the fullness of Jesus that's in me at the intersection of my relationships with others and how best to position my life so that in my pursuit to be a better disciple, I'm also making disciples. That's simple. That just seems so simple.